So I want to bring greetings to all you survivors of Black Friday, Cyber Monday, Giving Tuesday, and Leave Me Alone Wednesday. <laughs> I, I think it's a telling commentary on our culture that uh, the original idea of thanksgiving to God and the birth of our Savior have been eclipsed uh, by sentimentality and commercialism. And of course, we all remember that back in the day, it wasn't like this. But every generation from the 1600s on has lamented, when was Christmas still pure? Since Christmas has been celebrated as a special day only since the 1600s, Christmas really has never been pure. It only seems that way when we harken back to our childhood, never noticing the stress that your parents experienced during this season. But enough complaint about Christmas being turned into a, a front for consumerism. As Christians, we really should expect nothing else from the enemy of our souls, who's a master counterfeiter. So what do we do about it? Well, I think we can spend the time leading up to Christmas itself just reminding ourselves of why it's such an important celebration and why it's become such an important celebration. So this Advent season, we're going to concentrate on the miracle of Jesus, the Lord of the universe, becoming man, by looking at these titles that have been given to him in the Old Testament and New Testament. Let's open in prayer. I thank you, Father, that you sent your son, Jesus, a plan that was put together even before the beginning of time, before creation itself began. I thank you that nothing comes as a surprise to you. There is no plan B. It's always a plan A, even though from our standpoint, it seems kind of unraveled at times. But I thank you, Father, that you are in charge of this universe. You are in charge of setting up people, taking them down, of uh, providing leadership where needed, for providing opportunities to suffer on behalf of Christ, if that be necessary. And all these things, we thank you that you are the blessed controller of all things, and we can place our faith and our trust in you. Especially, Father, as we consider this time of the year when we actually have a chance to contemplate a bit more deeply this great mystery of how Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords, became man and dwelt among us full of grace and truth. And the fact that seeing him meant that we could see you face to face, Father. So I just thank you for that opportunity to give us this special time of the year to do that. Help us, Father, to see a, maybe a little bit deeper this morning about what it means for Jesus to be the prophet to end all prophets. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we call this, uh, this season of the year Advent often. And Advent just means coming, or it means arrival. So this season for Christians really is to sharpen our focus on the birth of Jesus, who is the Christ, in his first Advent, along with anticipating the return of Christ the King in his second Advent yet to come. So Advent is really celebrating a truth about God's plan for the world, the revealing of God in Christ, who will one day reconcile all of creation to God. So this year, uh, we want to concentrate on Jesus as more than just a helpless infant sleeping in a sheep feeding trough. We look at what is called the threefold office of Jesus the Christ, of Jesus the Messiah, namely Jesus as prophet, as priest, and as king. Now these three offices, these three uh, roles, were part of the structure that God set up to govern the nation of Israel, using men as his servants. I mean, Moses was the first prophet, and Aaron, his brother, was the first priest, and Saul was the first king. 
Now, these roles were established in ancient times as shadows or as types of the one future individual who would fill all the roles at the same time, all together, at the same time on earth and also on into eternity. So these are like landmarks. These are like road signs in the Old Testament that mark the way, the road to Jesus, who really is God's final word to mankind. So this term Messiah combines all three of these roles into one. Messiah means anointed one. And each of these officers in the Old Testament were anointed, the prophets by God himself, and the others usually by a prophet. Whoops. So if we, let's just summarize the role of each of these kind of in reverse order of how we're going to cover them. Uh, the king's function was to rescue and to rule, to fight on behalf of God's people, to defend the weak, and to rule wisely under the authority of God's word. And the priest's role was mainly one of reconciliation, to present the needs of the people before God and to protect God's holiness from defilement, using sacrifices of innocent animals to picture God's ultimate reconciliation that's going to take place in Jesus. And the role of the prophet is the one that was established historically the earliest of the three. Now, despite our current misunderstanding, prophets were not primarily tellers of the future. Their primary role was to reveal God, to preach and teach God's word, to comfort, to bring comfort and hope and conviction leading to repentance. They used the past, they used the present, and they used the future in order to bring the message of God's, God's nature and God's word to the people at that time to lead them into a life of holiness and repentance. Now, of the three of these roles, the only one, the prophet was the only one who received his call directly from God. A true prophet functioned outside the establishment. And the prophets at the time of their call were not overjoyed at the prospect of being called to be a prophet. Because the prophet became so in sync with God that he, he felt as God feels and he thought as God thinks. He heard truth at frequencies that are way too hard for the average human to hear. And since he told the truth, he was never popular for very long. <laughs> Prophets knew that when they were called, they were probably not going to die a natural death. And if they tried to turn their notice, remember what happened in Jeremiah's case. In Jeremiah chapter 20, we read this. The word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and derision all day long. If I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart as it were a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. When we consider that, the suffering that the prophets endured, we have to consider that even today, if we order off the Christian's menu, you can't request to hold the suffering. So from now until Christmas, we're going to take up each of these three offices, and see how Jesus brought them all together as God planned from before creation. So this morning we're going to consider the first of these offices, historically, Jesus, the prophet of prophets. And to do that, we're going to look, at, first of all, at a passage in the Old Testament in the book of Deuteronomy, of all places. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 through 18. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, that's Moses, 
from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Now this passage is part of Moses' farewell sermon, just before he dies. And he's reminding Israel just one last time about the covenant they entered into with God and the law that came with that covenant, all the requirements when they agreed to follow God in the covenant. And he's reminding them of where, they, where they'd come from, where they were going, and how they got there. Now you might think it was unnecessary because weren't these people all there at Mount Sinai when all these events took place? Well, for the most part, they weren't. Almost everyone that was there at Mount Sinai has died. That was 40 years before this time, the 40 years in the wilderness. So the people now listening are that next generation for whom those things are just history, things they heard from their parents, not personal experience. These are the first millennials. Now, they had heard stories from their parents of the rumblings on the mountain, and the sound of a trumpet that no man was playing, a very loud trumpet, playing the call and the salute to the king of kings. They heard about the fire burning at the peak and the, and the smoke rising from the entire top of the mountain. This is like a furnace. The clouds and the flashing of lightning and the shaking of the, of the whole mountain and the violent thunder that went with it. And the people cried out so they wouldn't have to hear the voice of God anymore. They said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God let me not see this great fire anymore, lest I die. Now, when they had the opportunity that most people think that they would love to have, that is to see God and to hear God directly, they recoiled in terror. And they pleaded for God to speak through a middleman. And God agreed. In fact, it appears that that was God's plan all along, to teach his people that they could not bear the, to face God directly. He wanted to teach them to listen to those who would proclaim his word to them, which is a lesson he's still trying to teach his people today. So as Moses is speaking to the people, God makes a promise to them. The promise he made is one of the greatest promises of all times. He promised to send a prophet like Moses. Why would that be one of the greatest promises? Well, Moses is the prophet unlike any other. He's the prophet to whom God spoke in the words of Scripture, as a man speaks to his friend face to face. When God, God spoke to Moses, Moses could see God, or at least what God wanted of him to see, be seen. Moses spoke, God answered. God spoke, Moses answered. He had everything straight from God. He could ask questions, he could even get answers. So the revelation of God through Moses was different by degree and quality from all the other prophets after him until Jesus. And consider how the book of Deuteronomy itself ends in chapter 34. There has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. So the promise to send another prophet who would talk with God like Moses and reveal God and his will with that kind of clarity and power was a promise of something totally unique. And it became clear just how unique as the centuries rolled by 
And prophet after prophet failed to be just like Moses. If it wasn't clear at the outset, it became clear that the promised prophet was going to have to be the Messiah himself. And Moses predicted that this special prophet would arise in the future. Back in that section again in Deuteronomy 18, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It's to him you shall listen. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I'll put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So if you look at that, you notice first off that the Lord himself is the original source of this prophecy, of this forth telling. And the text continues by giving the characteristics of this prophet. Moses tells us, first of all, you know, that he is a prophet, which is a revealer of truth. From among you, he's going to be human. From your brother Israelites, like me, like Moses, and you must listen to him. And then God adds some additional elements. God will put his words in the prophet's mouth, and he will speak everything that God tells him. So we have just one text here that provides a complete database about the prophet. Nothing else is really said in specific about this the prophet in the Old Testament. Because most of us think of Jesus as a baby or as Messiah, lamb, priest, lion, those terms that we just saw, savior, king, or some other kind of descriptive term. But how many of us think of Jesus as a prophet, let alone the only capital P prophet in history? This is one New Testament claim about Jesus that we often overlook. Remember those disciples that after Jesus' resurrection who were on their way back home to Emmaus. They're walking along the road and Jesus comes alongside them and they don't recognize at first that he is Jesus. And they have a conversation. And part of that conversation goes in Luke chapter 24. Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God, and all the people. Well, how do we know that Jesus is the prophet, promised by God through Moses 1,500 years before Jesus' birth? Well, we have some more landmarks, some more road signs along the way. The first way we know is through the ministry of John the Baptist. You all know that expectations were high around the time of Jesus' birth, that the Messiah was coming soon. And if Jesus is a long-expected Messiah, then we should expect that he would receive some kind of a substantial formal introduction, especially to the Jewish people. Well, Jesus, as we know, especially in Luke's Gospel, was introduced by several sources from the very beginning of his life on earth. And there were angelic visitations to Zechariah and to Mary and to Joseph, angelic choruses to shepherds, the appearance of Persian royalty bringing gifts in response to seeing the Shekinah glory of the Lord in the east. There was a unique man with special credentials who confirmed Jesus as the capital P prophet. John the Baptist was not just an isolated prophet who foretold the arrival of Jesus. He was a type, he was a picture of the prophet Elijah, predicting the imminent arrival of a truly remarkable individual. The promised prophet, singular, was understood to be a person that would come during the time of the Messiah. 
Now, this expectation became really uh, obvious in a confrontation between John the Baptist and the religious authorities that came all the way out from Jerusalem to the Jordan River to see what he was up to. When John announces the kingdom of God, the priests and Levites ask him, Who are you? And he says, Well, I'm not the Messiah. And they asked him, Well, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. Then they asked him, Why then are you baptizing if you're neither the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered, I baptize with water, but among you stands one who you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Now the angel had told Zechariah, John's father, that his son John would be a great prophet. He, John, should be great in the sight of the Lord. In God's scheme, it was critical that Jesus was preceded not just by a prophet, but by a great prophet. I mean, greatness of mission requires a preceding great herald announcing that mission. And Jesus said of John himself, he said, Among them that are born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. Yet this greatest of all prophets revealed he wasn't even related to to be compared with Jesus at all. In addition to John's witness about Jesus as the greatest and final prophet, how else might we know that Jesus is the prophet Moses was predicting? We can tell one thing from Jesus' first sermon at his home synagogue in Nazareth. Because remember, as Jesus began his public ministry, he visits his home synagogue in Nazareth, which was his boyhood home where he grew up been his first 30 years. In Luke chapter 4, we get this interesting story. It says, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. They said, Is not this Joseph's son? So Jesus' words were initially welcomed. Here's the hometown boy who's making a name for himself, and crowds are following him. They want to be with him. They want to hear him. This is good news for synagogue attendants and also for the local chamber of commerce. But then Jesus ruins everything. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. But none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he walked away. 
So Jesus pointed out that if his ministry were correctly understood, he's going to be rejected like all the other prophets in the history of Israel. Because prophets were never received by Israel, but they were spurned, they were persecuted, and even killed. And this is only rare exceptions. So Jesus not only cited the principle that Israel had this history of not honoring their own prophets, but he also illustrated by the fact that the prophets were often treated more kindly by the Gentiles, by those who were outside of Israel. And as a result, the Gentiles received blessings at their hands that the people in Israel refused to receive. No wonder he was unpopular. So Jesus identifying himself with the Old Testament prophets based on the people's reaction to hearing God's truth. So how else, how else do we know that Jesus is the prophet that Moses predicted? The Transfiguration. There's a key text that shows Jesus as the prophet, and it's the encounter of the Transfiguration, where Peter, James, and John go with Jesus to a mountaintop, and they have this experience. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And meanwhile, there's a supernatural voice from heaven that declares, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Remember Deuteronomy 18:15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is him to who you shall listen. So this extraordinary event, I think, shows Jesus with a strong hint of his real power and glory. And he shows him with two of the key prophets from the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah. Often we see this as Moses being the lawgiver and Elijah being the prophet, but actually they're, they're also both prophets. And remember, there are a lot of parallels. They both experienced God's provision of food in the wilderness. Both prophets stood on Mount Horeb, the Mount of God, where Moses received the Lord's covenant for Israel. Both hid their faces as the Lord's glory passed. To both, the Lord demonstrated his presence in wind, earthquake, and fire. But for Elijah, there was a difference. The Lord was not in the wind, earthquake, or fire as it was for Moses, but he says, rather in a low whisper. Elijah needed to hear another aspect of God's character, the character of the Lord of hosts. Jesus really is God's gentle whisper, crucified in weakness but raised in power. And his voice is the one that now addresses us, not on the earthly Mount Sinai, but from the heavenly Jerusalem, summoning us to persevere in faith and speak his word, as all prophets do, which quietly achieves the purposes for which the Lord sent it. Well, besides the transfiguration, how else does Jesus confirm that he's a prophet foretold by Moses? Well, Peter's sermon in the book of Acts, after healing a man who was lame. Because now we move on from his delusions, from just hints by Jesus that he's the capital P prophet, to a direct quote of the passage from Deuteronomy 18. Peter is preaching in the temple at Jerusalem after healing the beggar, the one who was born lame. And Acts chapter 3 relates the story. Starting in verse 18. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. 
Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. The times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. Islam claims that those verses in Deuteronomy 18 predict the future arrival of Muhammad as the prophet. The folks in Salt Lake City use the same passage to call Joseph Smith the true prophet. Deuteronomy 18. But according to the New Testament, according to Peter's speech right here, Jesus was the only real fulfillment of Moses' prediction in Deuteronomy 18. Any other person claiming he fulfilled Moses' prediction is a false prophet. So a final reason why Jesus is the prophet foreseen by Moses is seen in how Jesus' life and ministry fulfills what Moses only foreshadowed. Since God is setting forth Jesus as the prophet of prophets, it only makes sense for us to look and see how Jesus' life paralleled the life of the greatest prophet of the Old Testament, Moses. And the fact that, was Jesus really like Moses? Well, Jesus came fulfilling a whole number of roles, but his role as prophet compares with Moses and fulfills what Moses could only anticipate. Remember, he was to be a prophet like Moses. I mean, Moses was esteemed so highly in Judaism that his return to earth was anticipated. They actually expected Moses to come back. But the New Testament teaches us that Moses only foreshadowed Jesus, who is the supreme prophet. We're reminded of this in Hebrews chapter 3. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Now there are a whole lot of instances in the life of Moses that anticipate Jesus' life. I'm just going to give a few kind of, to kind of whet your appetite. First of all, both Moses and Jesus were born when Israel was under bondage. Moses in Egypt, Jesus during Israel's Roman bondage. Edicts were issued by the Gentile powers of both Pharaoh and Herod for their death at birth. Both were miraculously delivered from death during their infancy from the enemies of Israel and were preserved through their childhood. Both were used by God to feed Israel miraculously. Moses with men in the wilderness, Jesus with bread and fish feeding large groups of people twice. And of course, Jesus also called himself the true manna from heaven that came down, comparing himself to the miracle that God had used to sustain Israel through the desert for 40 years. Both had the forces of nature obey them. In both cases, it was the sea, which was kind of the symbol in Israel of chaos and something to be feared. Both fasted for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness to bring a covenant to Israel. Moses on the top of Mount Sinai, followed by giving the law. Jesus in the desert as the Son of God, followed by the Sermon on the Mount. Both had a face-to-face -face relationship with God unlike any other person. 
God spoke audibly and directly from heaven to both Moses and Jesus. Both of them prayed for the people and were willing to bear the consequences of the people's sins. I mean, remember Moses at one point asked to be blotted out of God's book of life for the sake of the people. Rather than executing judgment on the people, he says, take my life instead. And Jesus asked that his very executioners be forgiven while he bore the consequences of their sin in their place. Both were sent by God to reveal his name and his person and his will to the people. Remember to Moses, at the, at the bush that was burning but not being consumed, God said to tell them that I am sent you. And Jesus said that he is that I am in person. Now both brought deliverance to the Jewish people. Moses led them out of slavery in Egypt. Jesus brought people out of a greater bondage, that is slavery to sin. And both of them reappeared after they died. Moses at the transfiguration and Jesus at his resurrection and his ascension. Those are just a few. You can probably find some more without getting into too many details. But, but everything that Jesus said and everything that he did was from God the Father and part of the plan and purpose of God. Just in the days of the Exodus, God has taken charge of his people and he's now leading them. He doesn't leave us a twist in the wind or or simply follow the musings of some kind of a self-appointed prophet. He gave his people Israel the clear word through Moses. And, through later, and the later prophets spoke to remind the people and comfort them and to bring them to repentance. The words of those prophets were largely meant for us, who end up, who end up with the living, living at the end of time as we do. Now you may ask in the famous question, the Whiffham question, right? What's in this for me? Why is this important to me? So what if Jesus was the fulfillment of an obscure passage in the Old Testament you probably read a hundred times and didn't pay much attention to? Just an exercise in satisfying curiosity, which I'm notorious for, or just another hermeneutical rabbit trail? Maybe, but I think there's much more to be gained than just satisfying curiosity. And we can glean some principles here, I think, as we prepare our hearts for the upcoming celebration of the Incarnation during this Advent season. One principle, one thing that we can learn is God's prophets are never popular. The Lord said this very clearly. Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. Later on in the book of Acts, the deacon Stephen would say to his Jewish brothers, which one of your fathers, which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? So the inference of what Stephen is saying is that there was never a prophet in the history of Israel, Israel who was popular among his own people. The Lord Jesus refused the popularity of his peers because he knew full well that once people really understood who he was and what he was about, most would oppose him. Jesus refused popularity because as the greatest prophet of all, men could not and would not take pleasure in him unless and until God changed their hearts which leads us to a second principle, which is that every Christian has been given a prophetic task. Every Christian has been given a prophetic task. It's not hard to conceive of our Lord as falling into the category of a prophet, but it may be a little more difficult to think of yourselves as having a job description that's very similar to the prophet's. Nevertheless, I, I believe that it's true to say that every Christian has a prophetic calling 
a prophetic ministry, and a prophetic message. Not the way it's misused today, but actually in accordance with what Scripture teaches. Remember that a prophet is one who reveals God's will to others and who speaks the words of God to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. Now the church, as the body of Christ, is continued to do and to teach where our Lord began in his earthly ministry. The great commission which is given to the church is a prophetic commission. The message that we are to take to the world centers around the prophetic themes of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So as proclaimers of God's truth, Christians expect opposition. Remember, the consistent teaching in the New Testament is that as Christians, we're going to pay a price for our obedience to God and his word. And this is, I believe, because of the prophetic nature of what God has called us to do, of our Christian life and ministry. Because we're not popular because of whom we identify with. Prophets have the singular purpose of identifying with God rather with their sinful fellow men. Remember that John the Baptist lived apart from his culture, even from his own family. He wasn't unaware of what his culture was doing. He was all too, unfortunately, he knew all too well what was going on. But he wasn't a part of it. He stood apart from the world. So, true, so too, the Christian is to stand apart from the world, and as a result, we're going to suffer persecution. Ephesians 5.11, which is looked at not too long ago, says, Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead, even expose them. You really can't expose them if you're in the middle of it and doing the same things. You'll have to be separate from it. So by refusing to live according to our former lifestyle, the ways of the world, because we don't live that way, we now have the ability to condemn sin, to convict sinners, and become very unpopular. But also in our identification with Christ as our prophet, we're also required to identify with the needy, the poor, the oppressed, and the captives. The gospel forbids that we shun anyone due to their race or their social status. That's not an option. Since James warned the church about this in James chapter 2, the first four verses. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, or I say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So Christian identification with fallen humanity requires that the church identify with and associate with those people who we would consider outside. Because Paul tells us in Romans 12, Romans 12, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, proud, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. So as we follow Christ, it's part of our prophetic ministry. We have to serve the same people that the Lord served, namely those who were in need and acknowledge it and those who sought his grace. So any of us who would come to God for grace, have to stand in line with sinners, with the unclean, with the lepers, with the harlots and the tax gatherers.
And prophets are not popular because of the message. When King Jehoshaphat was celebrating, or deliberating as to whether or not he should go to war as an ally with King Ahab, the king of Israel, the false prophets of Israel all gave the green light. Jehoshaphat was not convinced, however, and he wanted to be sure that a true prophet had been consulted. He therefore asked, Is there not yet a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of him? To this king Ahab responded, Well, there is yet one man whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him. For he never prophesies good concerning me, but always evil. He is Micaiah, the son of Imlah. Well, from the perspective of wicked Ahab, Micaiah never told him what he wanted to hear. From God's perspective, though, Ahab never wanted to hear what God had to say. Ahab only wanted God to rubber stamp his sinful actions. So prophets are never popular with disobedient people. For those don't want to do God's will. And a prophet stands firmly in the fact that that's a requirement. So it is with us. Our words of counsel and our words of exhortation may be welcomed by a fellow believer, one who seeks to do the will of God, but our words of warning and our words of admonition, or sometimes even our words of comfort, will probably be rejected by anyone who is intent on doing evil. Prophets should expect that. Prophets are not popular because they tell people what they need to hear rather than what they want to hear. To bring brings us to the last application I came up with, and that is that our desire to be popular hinders our prophetic ministry. I mean, if I were to be completely honest about my sinful failures to witness to my faith, I'd have to confess that my fear of rejection, my fear of losing popularity with my peers, is my number one enemy. If we're more intent on winning God's approval than God's, we're either going to keep silent about the gospel or we modify the gospel to make it more appealing. And as a result, we end up dulling its cutting edge. Remember, it is a sharp sword. And the life of our Lord is a constant testimony to his desire to please the Father more than anyone or anything else. So his actions and his words are always governed by the will of the Father. So once we settle the question as to who we're going to serve, whom we're going to please, we have to come to grips with the most fundamental issue of the task of the prophet. And God put it this way to Jeremiah when he was calling him into this uh, very unpopular ministry. He says, Do not say, I am a youth, because everywhere I send you, you shall go, and all that I command you, you shall speak. Don't be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. As a holder of a prophetic ministry, that's a promise to you as well. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you. So now, through Jesus, we need to follow the word of the prophet that Moses promised. The prophet of all prophets. The capital P prophet. Because it's through Jesus that God has taken charge directly to lead us and to guide us. Every word of God's final capital P prophet is direct and clearly from God. He's the one who can answer our questions. He's the one that meets our every need. And he's our constant companion today and forever. But as prophets, 
in a sense. It's up to us to be able to, are willing to accept the commission? If you're a believer, you have accepted the commission. Now the question is, are you going to follow through? Or is it going to burn in your bones like with good old Jeremiah? Let's just pray. Lord Jesus, of all the incredible promises that are made about your birth, it's often easy to overlook the first and the most glorious, that you are the greater Moses. You are the Father's last word to us in person and in what you say. What a joy it is to know that you rule the world with truth and grace, both of which you overflow with. Throughout the whole history of your dealing with mankind, the Father spoke to the father, our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But finally and fully, he spoke to us through you, his beloved Son, creator, sustainer, and heir of all things. You are the final word, Jesus, the living word, the loving word, the incarnate word. Enable us, Father, to yield our wills to your Son, Jesus, to do as he calls us to do, recognizing that even though it may appear difficult from a human standpoint at times, we are a company. We are always being brought along. Jesus always comes alongside of us through the presence of his Spirit, and we are always fortified. We're always given the ability to speak the right words at the right time. As the early church asked, Father, please give us boldness. Don't give us opportunity because they're all around us. We already have opportunity. Just give us boldness to be able to exercise that ministry you have of revealing the truth wherever we have to, wherever you want us to. Just thank you for doing that, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.